Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 12th, we're studying Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. So many who heard the preaching of both John and Jesus rejected it. Where notoriously wicked cities would have repented, Israelite cities did not. The gospel has not been revealed to the wise and to the understanding, but to little children, all those who bring their heavy load to Jesus for rest. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's get started with some context this morning, Pastor Linnell. What do we have in Matthew's Gospel that will help us as we dig into these verses today? So the last time that uh, we were together was on uh, the 31st of January, I believe. And we talked about how Matthew's gospel, written around 50 AD, was directed primarily at a a Jewish audience. And it goes to great lengths to point out Jesus fulfilling prophecies of the Old Testament. And also uh, that it's organized not in a chronological way, but the birth and passion narrative aside, Matthew organizes the gospel into five sections called discourses, where he gathers Jesus's teachings and collates them by topic. Now, in order, these topics are the Sermon on the Mount, the discourse on apostolic ministry and martyrdom, the parables, matters of church practice, so uh, things like Matthew 18, how to deal with conflict in the church, and then uh, the last discourse on the end times. Our readings have recently concluded the second discourse on apostolic ministry and martyrdom, and that ended on Matthew 11.1. And you can always tell, by the way, when a a discourse ends, because Matthew writes some variation of the phrase, when Jesus finished teaching. So Matthew 11 reads, when Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, and that closes out the discourse on apostolic ministry. Now, the, the next discourse, it doesn't begin right away. In fact, the next discourse on parables doesn't start until Matthew twelve forty six. So what is all this stuff in between? How does it serve the gospel? And then specifically, where are we right now in Matthew twenty or eleven, twenty through thirty? Now, uh, I personally uh, see the text in between the discourses as showing course in action. I don't think that's terribly profound. I just think that's kind of what it looks like, right? So Jesus healing and the faith of those that that came to him, it shows us what it looks like to love your neighbor, to love sinners, and also the blessedness of the poor in spirit, because he just got done with the Sermon on the Mount. Here in chapter 11, we see Jesus reveal who he is and the increasing refusal of Israel, especially from her religious leaders, to acknowledge that identity and to receive him in faith. And I think this shows quite well that which Jesus taught to his disciples in the previous section on apostolic ministry and then their martyrdom. So before we talk about our specific text, would, would you be kind enough to read it for us? Let's do that. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the text we have for today. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Pastor Linnell, as you were setting the text up, you said we're, we're seeing that discourse on the apostolic ministry and martyrdom put into practice. And it, it seems so far in Matthew chapter 11, the majority, the majority of it deals especially with the, the issue of, of martyrdom and the rejection of what John and Jesus have been preaching. And, and we see that, I think, at the beginning part of the text, as Jesus, it says he ben- denounces these cities where the mighty works had been done. Start dr- digging into that for us, please. So Jesus, he um, begins his ministry. I mean, he begins his ministry, you know, coming to be baptized and, you know, going in uh, out into the wilderness and defeating the, the devil and his temptation. And he begins preaching, but he, he goes... Uh, into uh, to Galilee, right? And he's he's doing these miracles and stuff up here. And and this is this section that we start with is not disconnected from what came before. So while he's up there and he's he's you know finished teaching his disciples and a lot, you you remember from yesterday that uh, John sends some of his disciples and and they start asking him whether or not he's the real guy, because the ministry that they see. And the response that they see is not what they expect. And this is really, I think, kind of the whole point of that second discourse. It's not only that there are uh, apostles being sent to you, but if you are and, and you have a, a gospel that you're sending out and you're catechizing people, you start with this first section on the Sermon on the Mount and you, you lay out basically the gospel and you lay out all the things. And then you immediately go to, uh, this is why I have the authority to bring this to you. And also, don't freak out when they take me away and do terrible things to me. Because when you're first sort of teaching this gospel and you're teaching it to Jews and teaching other people, you know, they're coming and, and you're, you're, you're trying to um, take what they've learned from the Old Testament. And I don't want to say add to it, but show where it's fulfilled. You're, you're, teaching them something about the Old Testament that maybe they haven't heard before. What gives you the authority to do that? That's what the second discourse is about. But then people are going to come and take you away and do terrible things to you. And in a, in a society that, that has a lot of teachings where, where if bad things happen to you, they say that's because God is angry at you, then you, you need this, this sort of thing in the, you know, up in the forefront that says, don't expect that great things are going to happen to me because I'm doing this. Expect that bad things are going to happen to me because I'm doing this. That way, when people come and take your leaders away or they take your teachers away or persecutions come and stuff like that, you don't think that the message is wrong. God's not punishing these people because they're preaching and teaching the wrong things because God's not the one doing that. You know, others are doing that, but God will still use it for good. You get to go before princes and kings and proclaim the message there. So, once you, you have that, and then you say, there's this part where Jesus says, you know, a, a servant is not above his master. It's enough that you're like me. Well, if you're going to say that it's enough that you're like me, you should probably show where Jesus suffers those same things. And so that's kind of what this is, right? John's sending his guys, and he's like, I thought you were supposed to be a big thing, and people are not responding in the way that we want. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, but, but look at the Bible, man. You know, look at the prophecies that you came to preach. Those are being fulfilled. Don't worry about what they're doing. Worry about what I'm doing. And then you get, you know, he, he talks about this generation. So in uh, verses 16 through 19 is the lead up, right? He says, what shall I compare this generation? You know, uh, it's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. You sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they said he has a demon, and a son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a front of tax collectors and sinners. Nothing, nothing you do is going to be right. You know, it, it's like being on Twitter. It doesn't matter what you post, man, you're going to get in trouble, you know, and preaching the gospel is going to be a sort, of a same, sort of the same thing. So then what is Jesus's response to that? You know, he, he, he goes out and he, and he says, you know, you, you didn't accept me. You didn't accept John. You didn't, you know, any of these things. 
what is what is his response to that? His response to that is really kind of biting, but that's what this is. Starting at verse 20 and going to verse 24, this is Jesus's response to how this generation has been turning away in unbelief. And when we say this generation, again, I just want to be really clear. We're talking about the contemporaries of Jesus. You know, he says this generation um, in the previous section, it's the first time it comes up in the gospel, but it's going to occur a lot in Matthew. It's going to show up in uh, uh, Matthew 12 uh, twice. It's going to show up in chapters thir- uh, 23 and 24. He's going to have similar phrases in 1239 and then also in chapters 16 and 17. Every time that he says this generation, he's talking about his contemporaries. But just because he's talking about his contemporaries, it's not wrong for us to take out some sort of cautionary instruction not to be like that generation, because that that is indeed kind of the point. So he's saying this generation, and how does he respond? Um, well, the towns he mentions are uh, Corzin, um, and Corzin is almost straight north of Capernaum, about two miles, and Capernaum is on the north northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is almost straight west of Corzine, about four or five miles, again, as, as the crow uh, flies. These are towns that he has been in, he's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been performing miracles. And what's their response been? Overall, not great. I mean, people are coming to him in droves, but why are they coming to him? They're only coming to get people healed. They're coming to get things that, you know, they're coming to eat their fill of bread. In you know, John 6, he chastises them because they just show up because they want more food, right? But, but faith isn't really what he sees. And so in, a, in an incredibly uh, aggressive, uh, judgmental, uh, and stark, eye-opening kind of way, he compares these cities to cities in the Old Testament that we know full well are, are not heroes, right? Um, Sidon and Tyre. Now, if you're unfamiliar, uh, Sidon was a, a powerful city-state that Israel failed to conquer during its purge of the Promised Land, and that's uh, recorded there in, in Judges, right? Judges 131. Uh, Sidon is located in modern-day Lebanon. Um, Judges 10 and 1 Kings 11 mention the worship of Sidonian gods, so their influence was really pretty negative. Tyre's going to be the same way. Um, Tyre, uh, Syrophoenician uh, region, and also then modern-day Lebanon, and then in uh, parts of Galilee there. But the thing is, is that as terrible as those two cities were, they weren't all bad, at least not everybody there. First Chronicles 22 mentions... Um, gathering materials from Tyre and Sidon for the building of the temple. Uh, Ezra 3 mentions Tyre and Sidon helping to rebuild the temple after exile. And um, it was a Sidonian city, Zarephath, at which the widow uh, took care of Elijah and where Elijah raised her boy from the dead. Uh, The Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 would likewise be a sign of faith, um, and she would be from, from Tyre. So you, you have these things where the prophets or Jesus himself, in, in the case of Matthew 15, you know, they respond, even though they're obviously sort of sinful, they're not Jewish and they're not great, but they still respond in faith. And Jesus is looking around and he's saying, you guys aren't. So that's kind of where that, that initial comparison comes from. He said so they would have repented if, long ago. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to, just to, to kind of summarize then, the, the basic gist of what Jesus is saying here to, to Chorazin and Bethsaida is, look, you guys should know better. These, these places, if they had seen these things, they would have known to repent, and they, they really have no business knowing. And if that's true, then how much more should you have repented? It's, it's, I mean, they should have known better. Is that maybe another way of, of phrasing the same idea? Yeah, I mean, they, the ones to whom Jesus is talking now, yeah, arguably should have known better. But I mean, they're still Galilean cities, you know, they're still Gentile cities. But, but the response of faith from these Old Testament enemies uh, is, is a, a really harsh judgment against you, you know, because they responded better than you are, and they are clearly our enemies. 
So what does that mean with you? You get down to Sodom, like we, we know what happened to Sodom, right? If mighty works had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Like, do you remember, man, you remember that story where uh, God shows up with like his two angels and the two angels go on to Sodom and uh, God's standing on the cliff with Abraham and Abraham's like, uh, and God's like, yeah, I'm going to destroy that city. And Abraham's like, yeah, but what if there's 50 good people in it? God's like, all right, I won't destroy it for 50. And then Abraham like works his way down to 10. And God's like, yep, won't destroy it for 10. And then Abraham's like, okay, good. And you're like, Abraham, what are you doing? Keep going, my man. You know that there's one good person in there. Why didn't you go for it? Like, what's it going to hurt, right? The worst thing you could say is no. And of course, the, I think the point of that is that we're all expecting him to do that. And then he doesn't. But uh, Lot is not Jesus. He's not the one guy that saves everything. And so there is something yet to come. But that's the whole point, right, is that there was at least one faithful person in Sodom. So what does that mean about you? Like, that's really harsh, you know. And this isn't like a sad thing that Jesus is doing. Like, this is really terrible, scary sort of judgment stuff. So, yeah, I should have known better. Now, you can apply that to us today, right? Let's, let's take a look over in Africa, right? Uh, you know, you got African or Asian countries. They, they don't have a, a tremendous history of, you know, a Judeo-Christian background, but, but the gospel is spreading over there, and they, they respond to it really well. We, as a, as a nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, right, regardless of what you want to say about our founders, it's not like they didn't know about Jesus. We've had Jesus the whole time. What are we doing? What are we doing? You know, and it's not even like people don't even, because I mean, goodness, there's Pharisees, there's Jews, there's stuff like that, but are they responding in the appropriate way? And it's it's a little scary. Now, I'm not some, you know, weird doomsday guy where I think God's going to pour down fire on our nation because of that, you know. I think that, uh, you know, when God does that in the Old Testament, he warns people first. I haven't, you know, seen any prophet coming out, you know, declaring specific terrible things are going to happen. You know, stuff happens in New Orleans or in Haiti, and then you got weirdos that jump out and say, that's God's judgment against them. Yeah, where were you warning them before it happened? You know, but still, Jesus is coming back, right? And then what? You know, there's a lot of terrible things go on, man. And, and it's not just like, uh, you know, we all sin because we do all sin. And there's repentance for that. And that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Siren, uh, Sidon and Tyre in the Old Testament were not great. But in, in a weird kind of roundabout way, he's complimenting them. You know, but, but good grief, like, how can, how can we live in a nation that celebrates some of the things that it celebrates and not be fearful of what is to come eventually? But then again, it's not just our nation. It's the whole world. And so, yeah, this is a whole lot of law, and it's supposed to be scary. That's what the law does. It's supposed to scare you. But scare you into what? Well, hopefully not, you know, hiding in a cave and calling for the mountains to fall down upon you, but to turn in repentance to where there is forgiveness, to, to take a look and to say, oh, oh, maybe we're, maybe we're really not, maybe that we should, yeah, and then turn around back to Jesus. Does that make sense? It does. And and I think that's very important to point out that repentance is the goal of all of this. And and that's where it starts. It's it's something, you know, there in verse 20, where Jesus is denouncing these cities, and, and Matthew writes, these are the cities where his mighty works had been done and they didn't repent. And that that strikes me as a bit unusual when at least with the way that we tend to think about Jesus' mighty works. I think we look at the, the mighty works and think, oh, this is awesome. Sort of like, yeah, go Jesus type talk. But Jesus Jesus would say here that the mighty works, these miracles, first bring about repentance. That, I mean, maybe like Peter would be a good example in Luke chapter five, where Jesus is is coming on his boat and says, hey, throw the net on the other side. And he catches all these fish. And what does Peter say? Lord, get away, because I'm I'm not worthy. That, that all these things are, are calls to repentance, including this, this preaching of law. And that's not the natural stance that we would take. I think it's maybe if you could talk about this a little bit, Pastor Linnell, you, we didn't mention Capernaum in particular. I know you, you used that as a reference point for where Chorazin and Bethsaida are. But I, I find it telling Cor, Capernaum, Jesus says, Capernaum apparently has this idea that it's going to be exalted to heaven, right? That sounds like pride. Is, is going, why do they think they're going to be exalted to heaven? 
and Jesus comes with the shocker, no, no, you're going down to Hades. Uh, you know, Jesus, he, he starts his ministry kind of over there. I mean, he, he's got uh, you know, disciples that are that are coming up from there, you know, the fishermen that are, you know, based, you know, out of Capernaum. And I think, you know, they're like, oh, look, you know, it's, it's our hometown boys. Obviously, we're blessed. And that's that's not necessarily true. You know, it'd be, it would be sort of like us saying, you know, well, I've got, I've got some German heritage and Luther. So, you know, there you go. I mean, I'm good. I mean, it's almost the same thing that the Jews are doing, really. They're like, yeah, we've got Abraham as our father. We're good. You know, well, we've got these guys that came from Capernaum. So I, I think it is it is that pride sort of thing. It's interesting to me, you know, and I like what you, you brought up. Um, the mighty works that Jesus has done, what are those? Is that the mighty catch of fish or the, the great catch of fish? Is that the multiplying of, you know, bread and fish for people to eat? The, the mighty works that God has done if you really pay attention, is the forgiveness of sins. And this is where, where he starts. If you go back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, what is he really talking about? Blessed are you, you know, who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because I'm here, right? The, the gospel is the forgiveness of sins that's been preached. And then in the, in the, in the passages between the Sermon on the Mount and um, the second discourse, Jesus goes around and heals people. Jesus goes around and heals people, and you, you get uh, the thing where he heals the paralytic, and they're all like, hey, you can't do that. And he's like, well, so that you know the Son of Man may have authority to forgive sins. Like, it's explicit that the miracles he's doing are the forgiving of sins. But the problem then is, if, you know, you don't, there's no forgiveness of sins without repentance. So are these miracles really benefiting you? You know, you, you go to the Lord's Supper, you receive the body and blood of Jesus. That's a miracle. But are you receiving the benefit apart from faith? You know, and then uh, faith being the, the second part of repentance. You know, if, if the miracles that you're looking for are these great and, and mighty deeds, but you're overlooking the forgiveness of sins, then that's, you're missing the gospel completely. And I think that Jesus is a, a sort of a terrible Waltherian in this regard. He certainly preaches law and gospel, but he kind of starts with the gospel. You know, and we're used to starting with the law, but it, but he starts with the gospel because they have enough law. Right? Their whole life is law. And so he comes in with this wonderful gospel message. And then it's to those who say they don't need it. Those who think that the law is the right way to go, who are who are secure in their self-righteousness, to whom he preaches this law. And there is it's really harsh. Like there's there. He's holding nothing back. Like it's it's, you know, the law and it's. It's full sharpness. So it's, it's kind of unpleasant, but it's not the end of the story, you know? And so uh, I guess before we move on, uh, you know, it's not the end of the story. And the other thing that I think we should take from it is that, remember, this is coming out of a section where he's explaining to people or where he's teaching to his disciples about the martyrdom that's coming, how they're going to be rejected. This is being taught to the, cat, to the catechumens as, hey, here's this wonderful gospel message. Don't be surprised when people are going to reject it. And so here, I think one of the other things that, you know, we get uh, out of this is that, yeah, um, all of these terrible things or whatever, but does that mean that, uh, that the kingdom of God is has not come to that place. Does that mean that God is dethroned by their rejection? Certainly not. He's still judge. He's still doing his own, you know, he's going to complete his mission and do his own thing. Just because you look around at the world or you look around at your country and you don't see it, you know, honoring God's word in the way that you want, like that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with God. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the gospel message. It doesn't mean you need to change your things to make it more appealing to somebody else. Now, granted, you can maybe change yourself a little bit to not be so abrasive, but that doesn't mean that you change the message. You know, it doesn't mean that you change the gospel. And, and I think that that's an important thing to take away from that, because in face of all of this rejection, does Jesus change anything about his message or his approach? Most certainly he does not. So why should we? Mm, that's a, that's a good point. Just to to tie it up on this side of the the break, uh, what you were saying there about the forgiveness of sins being that big mighty work that he's doing fits very very well with everything he said in the in the discourse he gave in chapter ten, where where he sends his twelve out first to proclaim right to to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then everything else that accompanies that word, the healing etc., comes right with it. But the proclamation is key. And then in, in the message that John 
that John receives there in prison when Jesus tells the two disciples to go back and tell John, you get this list of, of mighty works, right? And it seems to be building to a climax. And, and the, the fifth one is, is that the dead are raised up, which seems to be, ah, oh, that's the big thing. But then Jesus finishes with what really is the big thing. The poor have good news preached to them. There's the forgiveness of sins. And, and that's the mighty work that Jesus is ultimately doing. At, that's a great point to bring out. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take our break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, February 12th. We're studying Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30 with Pastor Sean Linnell of Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we examined the harsh preaching of the law that Jesus gives in verses 20 through 24 to these cities that had seen the forgiveness of sins that Jesus was preaching, but he they did not believe. And so it's, it's this very harsh law. And the question that you posed for us going forward, well, does this mean that that God is somehow off the throne, that the, the kingdom of God really isn't at hand? And I think that's what he what Jesus then starts to address as he moves into verse 25. What, what do we see Jesus start to do there? Well, I think especially if you're a, a good wall theory and you see the, the gospel coming after that law, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he says, uh, Jesus at that time declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. One of the things that I, I really like about that is how well it, uh, it ties in and leads us to uh, yesterday's text, right? Because Jesus, at the end of yesterday's text, he says, what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. Right? And then at the end, he says, uh, for uh, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And you see both of these things here, right? that he's revealed them to little children, and he's hidden them from the wise and understanding. And so I think these two things are connected. There's a really interesting uh, discussion. We're recording today, and so I I don't actually get to hear what we talked about yesterday. But I'd be really interested to hear uh, the conversation about um, whether Jesus here is referring to the generation as the children or whether or not uh, he's referring to him and John as the children who are calling out. And there's, there's disagreement among theologians and commentaries about that. But I don't, Pastor Linnell, just, just real quick. Well, real quick from, I I recorded that show previously. And from what I recall, that was not a topic that we really touched on all that much. So maybe spend a little time if you'd like talking about it. Okay. Well, so uh, Jesus here, he says, uh, what what shall I compare this generation? It's like a, it's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. And so the question then is, uh, who is the one calling out? Is, is, the, is he saying that the generation is the children who are calling out? Or is he saying that he and John are like children calling out to, in the marketplace, calling out to this generation? Now, there's disagreement. Like if you read Lenski's commentaries, he thinks that, uh, that the generation is the children who are calling out in sort of an incredibly selfish uh, way because they don't get what they want and then they throw tantrums. But like if you read Gibbs, Gibbs takes the uh, a different approach and he says that uh, it's it's incredibly likely that here the children are Jesus and John and they're calling out and so you know they're playing the flute for you but you didn't dance so they're coming with this wonderful gospel message but your response was not appropriate and then you know they're saying a dirge for you right you just have the the woes that are coming up but you don't mourn. You know, you, you know, here's, here's the law and here's the terrible things, 
right? But you, but you don't want, and then he presents this as sort of a, a, a chiasm, right? So it, it moves up to a point and then it, it sort of moves off in, in the other direction. So as opposed to say like a parallelism where you have line A, line B, line A2, line B2, you have in a, a chiasm, you have A, B, and then B2, A2. And so here, you know, you see, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. Uh, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking. John was the one playing the dirge. And they say he has a demon. They didn't mourn. The son of man came eating and drinking, so playing the flute. And you say, oh, look, he's got a, you know, he's a glutton and a drunkard in front of tax collectors and sinners. And so it kind of goes back that way. But either way that you view it, they're not responding the way they're supposed to respond. You know, which is with faith and, and repentance. And then he says, you know, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And Gibbs has a slightly different sort of translation on that, which is they're the ones who claim to be wise and they're using the Bible in order to justify themselves. But it's not the fault of the message. It's because they're actually idiots. And so, you know, here on you get down to the bottom where we're in our lesson. And it says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding who are basically, the, you know, the religious leaders, the people who, who claim to be self-righteous and who claim to be something special. And you have revealed them to little children, because who would respond to children calling out to dance? I mean, the, the adults and the people who are wise are going to look at you and they're going to be like, I'm busy. I have stuff to do. You know, the, if you play a dirge and you want to mourn, if you're role playing in these things, adults uh, are generally uh, not of the, the disposition to play along like that. It's just not as fun, right? Especially if you've got work to do. But if you become like little children, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then the interesting thing is, is that, you know, John and Jesus aren't just whimsically playing along. These are the actual truth of things, and it's the wise and learned who take themselves far too seriously and their works far too seriously, and they see these other things as just make-believe. And and that's kind of, I think, what Jesus is saying here, you know, uh, because if it's our Father who is in heaven, then what are we? We, at least, you know, by God's grace, are his children, so act like it. And I think that's uh, a, a tie-in and a connection that he's making, um, and I think that it, it fits quite well with that that way of reading what Jesus was saying at the end of the text yesterday, and that this is his good and gracious will, because God the Father doesn't come down to call people who have something have something to offer him. What does God need from us? You know, he doesn't need anything. What does he want from you? Well, he wants you. And then certainly he wants you to, you know, to live in a way that's pleasing in his sight, but not in some arbitrary way. What does any parent want from their children, except that maybe they would treat their siblings halfway decent and stop screaming and fighting all the time and beating each other up, <laughs> and that they would go out and do good things, you know? And, and why? Does it reflect well on me? I'm sure, maybe, but it's good for you. Like, I don't even know why we have to, you know, describe why I want you to do good things. Because they're good things. And so uh, that's what our Father wants from us. Hmm. When Jesus continues and he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This really, uh, this line, uh, you know, which we, we've seen in our Gospels, we've seen it in John, you know, quite a bit. Um, but here, it's really getting to the heart of what, what the point is. You know, people are rejecting the gospel message. And if you, if you are one who responds in, in faith and repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's so confusing. You go out and you say to somebody, hey, God loves you and he forgives your sins because of Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. And because of that, now you need not fear anything from him and you'll be raised to life everlasting. And they respond with, Hey, why don't you quit judging me and back off, you crazy person? It's a confusing response. Why would they? Did I say something wrong? Did I screw it up somehow? I mean, it seems so simple, but obviously there must be something wrong with me or something wrong with the message. No sane person would respond to that message with such hostility. 
And, and that's what, what he's addressing. No, there's nothing wrong with you. And there's nothing wrong with your message. Well, then, then why? Why didn't, they, why didn't they respond? You know, if there's nothing wrong with the message, you know, you're casting out the seeds and everything. Why don't the seeds grow appropriately like they're supposed to? And Jesus says they do. They do. But it's, it's my Father who chooses to reveal them. And nobody, nobody knows the Son except the Father and the one to whom the Father chooses to reveal him. So, you know, at the risk of becoming Calvinists in that regard, uh, the point is that it's not, it's not your fault when people persecute you for the sake of righteousness, but indeed you're blessed hmm. because you do have uh, the gospel. The Father has revealed it to you. So, you know, even if the demons aren't being cast out, instead rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Hmm. So, so then in that sense, the text functions as a comfort for the disciples who've gone out and have been rejected, just like Jesus and John have been rejected. You, you brought up, Pastor Linnell, the, the era of Calvinism, which I, I would imagine you're talking about <laughs> double, double predestination. And, and there are some parts of this text that, that perhaps would trouble to trouble our consciences that, that make it sound like there is something like double predestination. Jesus thanks his father that he's doing this. It, it does talk about the father hiding. That, that seems to be an active verb, like he's actively hiding it from it. How do we, how do we read this text and avoid that error of double predestination? Goodness gracious. Uh, yeah. How much time do we have left? No, I think <laughs> 15 uh, minutes. <laughs> right. No. So, uh, so there's, there's a couple of things. Um, it, the, the doctrine of double predestination for those who are unaware, is that God chooses from the beginning before anything is, is made who is to be saved and who is to be condemned. Those who are saved are called the elect and those who are not are called the reprobate. And it's entirely based on God's sovereign choice. And his grace is irresistible. It has nothing to do with, you know, your willing or wanting or anything else. God chooses who is to be saved, and this is the important part, God chooses who is to be condemned. It's his will that they are condemned, because in that respect, it shows his, his you know, infinite justice and wrath. One of the primary texts by which people will use to justify this is going to be Romans uh, 8 or 9, where it talks about the, I think it's 9, where it talks about the potter and the clay and everything else. By the way, if anybody ever does that, uh, the clay, the vessels that have been prepared for the foundation of the world, you know, for God's wrath and destruction, that's Jesus, not the reprobate. That's neither here nor there. So in here, when you're, when you're taking a look at this, what we believe as Lutherans and what the Bible teaches is that God chooses those who are, who are saved. It's by, by his will and his work, right? the work of the Holy Spirit, that you have faith. It's not by your choice or anything else. But God does not will, desire, or choose that there are those who go to hell. That uh, God desires that all would repent and be saved. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily always how that goes. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis actually had a really great um, explanation of that. Um, who's not a Lutheran, by the way, so you grain of salt, but still he says, um, to those who are saved, uh, or those who are saved, say to God, thy will be done, and those who are condemned, God says to them, thy will be done. And that's kind of where, where we're at here. So then you end up with a couple of issues. You, you say, well, what about Pharaoh in the Old Testament where God hardens his heart? What about these here where, where the Lord you know, hardens their heart or something like that? He's hidden these things. Yeah. Um, there's explanations about, you know, well, they rejected God first and, you know, he came to them and then he's under no obligation to irresistibly overcome that. And there's a whole bunch of other things. And, and I think that those are all fair, right? You know, um, Pharaoh rejects and then God removes, you know, the Holy Spirit from him, right? But, but I think that the point is, and, and this is really kind of the issue, nobody's forcing them against their will. If you believe that you're a sinner, and that you're, you are conceived into sin. You, there's original sin. There's nothing you can do of your own power that's going to be a good work 
because, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit, everything you do is sinful, then how can God still hold you accountable? How can God still hold you accountable when there's no choice that you can make naturally and apart from him that's going to be a good deed? Everything is sinful. Well, I say it this way, and I teach to my confirmation kids this way. Uh, Would you eat kale salad for breakfast? And they're all like, we don't even know what kale is. And I'm like, yeah, you probably wouldn't either. It's it's not great. Um, and they said, I said, okay, well, would you eat broccoli, plain broccoli for breakfast if we made it for you? And they were like, no. I said, okay, then you don't get to use as an excuse, uh, nobody made me a healthy breakfast for eating like garbage every day. Because even if it was offered to you, you wouldn't choose it. Nobody is forcing you against your will to eat garbage things. And so in this respect here, nobody is, God is not forcing them into disbelief. God is not forcing them against their will to reject Jesus. It's what they want. They're free to choose any of the things that they want. And they do. They, in a certain sense, choose to reject Jesus. And it's irrelevant that they don't have the choice or the option. They don't have the, you know, the power to choose Jesus because they wouldn't, even if they did, what they want is the bad things. And so in a, in a, you know, in a, in a certain sense, then, um, you know, God says, fine, have it your way. Now you say then on the other side, okay, well, but then why are some saved and not others? Because obviously I was in the same boat. And then the response to that is, I don't know. I don't know, but I give thanks and praise to God that, you know, uh, that he has revealed this to me because were it not for the grace of God, there go I. I don't know all the things. I don't have all the answers. I just tell you what the Bible says and then give thanks and praise to God if, uh, you know, if you listen, because it was by the Holy Spirit that he did that. But, you know, on a comforting note, uh, if you didn't believe, you wouldn't care. It's not like anybody sits around and, you know, and laments that they, they, you know, they don't believe. Because if you don't believe, you don't care. You're probably hostile. I mean, that's generally what, you know, a lot of atheists are. They're very angry about the whole thing. You know, but nobody is sitting around being forced against their will into unbelief. So that's, I think, you know, one of the main differences. And then when we get to a point where we don't have anything else to say, we just say, I don't know. Yeah, and that that's good. When when we don't have the answer, when God doesn't reveal His answer in Scripture, we don't give an answer, right? I mean, we we say what Scripture says, no more, no less, and and what Scripture teaches is what you've laid out for us that that those who are saved are so saved because God has chosen them by His grace, and those who are not saved are are there because that's what they wanted and they chose it, and it's their fault, not God's. And and He does yeah. truly desire the salvation of all people. And, and that, I mean, that even, even with all you laid out a fine answer there. And even here in the context of Matthew 11, it is apparent that God desires the salvation of all because of what Jesus says next in verse 28, he's, he's been praying. I mean, I I think that's what we could say. I thank you father. Mm -hmm. And, and it shifts now he's, he's not talking to his father anymore, but now he's addressing the crowds and, and what's the invitation that he gives to them. Right. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All, all who labor and are heavy laden. And really, who's Jesus calling out to? Is he saying, you know, everybody except you? No, he's saying everybody. Everybody. All of the peoples. You know, from every nation, tribe, and place, and background, and socioeconomic, race, creed, sex, all of them. And who are the only people that don't come? The only people that don't come are the people who self-identify as saying, no, I'm good. You know, I'm good. And and I think that, that again, the, the whole thing about predestination, like it's never meant... That teaching and the reason that God tells us this, it's never meant to cause any sort of uh, 
uh, worry or anxiety or question. It's, it's, it's there to give you uh, security and hope because if it was all left up to you, and this is one of the things that drives me absolutely nuts. Somebody would be really struggling in their faith, right? And then what's the response that they get when they come out and they tell somebody or they tell, and they say, man, I'm really struggling. I got a lot of doubt. And they say, well, you, you know, you should really pray. You should really pray. You need to be in the, but you need to believe more. You need to do it. What's going on in your life? And they turn it back on the person who just said that they were struggling. Somebody's drowning and you're like, swim more. You, what are you doing? Of course, that's, that's why they're coming to you. How about you tell them the gospel? How about you encourage them? Throw them a lifeline, you know? Don't just yell at them and tell them what to do. Jump down in there with them and rescue them in a certain sense, right? And this is kind of what Jesus is talking about, too. He doesn't say, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden and work harder. He says, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon or take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. I'm lowly in heart. I don't require much. You know? He says, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My burden is light. What is what is he really saying? He says, It's no burden at all. I'm here to take your burden from you. To take those sins to Take your diseases, your iniquities, your infirmities, your, your guilt and your shame, your regret, your fears, even your doubts and your insecurities to take those upon me and to take them where? He takes them to the cross. And then what does he leave you with? Well, rest. And rest how? You know, I mean, it's a wonderful sort of Sabbath illusion to uh, or illustration. Uh, grace and mercy and peace and life. Uh, a restored relationship with your father. I mean, that's really the whole point of Sabbath anyway, right? You know, I mean, they they have this Sabbath as a, a day where where they put even more rules, more regulations. The yoke is even heavier. And the whole point of Sabbath was that God set aside a day in all of creation so that he could spend it with you. Six days did he spend working and preparing all the other things. And six days of work as he set aside for you. But he created a special day in all of creation so that he could spend it with you. Because that's what all the other things are, you know, are there for anyway. And and so, you know, here he he makes that illusion as well, right? I'll give you I'll give you rest. I'll restore to you not only that relationship, but I'll fulfill all of the work. All of the work is done. And then the only thing left is what? For you to be with your father in peace and joy. And not just, you know, for one day, but for all of eternity. You know, uh, people get caught up, I think, on um, things like, well, what about those, you know, double predestination, everything else. Does it, does he sound like a God that is sitting off and going, you know, what would really make me happy is if I could just take, uh, take this group of people and, uh, and put them in eternal torment. I mean, never mind the fact that, that God says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for you, right? Does he sound like Thanos sitting off there just snapping his fingers and like half the people disappear or go to hell. Cause I, when I read this, he sounds a little bit more like, uh, I don't know, uh, a loving father who, who desires that all of his children would, would come uh, home so that, you know, as he sees them, even when they are far off, he might run to them and put a robe around them and a ring on their finger and kill the fatted calf and throw a celebration. So, uh, you know, with all of those things, take comfort. You know? And I think that's what it's, it's there for us as well, because you, you just heard the woes. And when you look around at the world, I think it's easy to understand the woes. When you look at your life, if you are uh, reflecting with any kind of honesty, I think it's easy to, to identify with the woes and to feel that contrition. But if contrition is the only thing, no, then that's no good. The second part of repentance is faith. And faith in what? Faith that God will forgive your sins, that he has died for you and rose again, and that he will raise you from the dead to life everlasting. And that's exactly what you see. A, a, God, who, a God who loves you, not a God who lusts for vengeance and wrath. 
I appreciate what you said about the Sabbath day, particularly the, the connection. And I think the, the connection to this passage in the Sabbath becomes apparent in tomorrow's text, where Jesus actually is, is accused of breaking the Sabbath, and he continues to, to explain, to, to show that he is our true Sabbath rest. And the way you said it, Pastor Linnell, that, that God sets aside a day to spend with you, how much more than in Christ, where, where he actually takes on our flesh— that that he he not just sets aside a day, but but he now is a a human being to be with you, to dwell with you. Your your Emmanuel, God with us here in in Jesus Christ, is a fulfillment of the Sabbath where your true rest is. We've got just under two minutes here, Pastor Linnell. Any concluding comments or a summary of of the morning for us? No, I, I think the Sabbath is a good place to to leave it because that's where we pick up on the next text. You know, any time that we talk about the end of times, we, we say on the last day. Why is it in a singular like that? Well, it's not that in the end of days, you know, there won't be any, I want to say, work to do in service to your neighbor or love or glorifying God, but it's epitomized by the view of the Sabbath, that in all of creation, God set aside this day to be with you. Because of everything that he made, you are his prized creation that which he is willing to give up his only begotten son to redeem and to keep. The Lord indeed may hide things from the wise and an understanding, but he has revealed them to you, his children, whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased through Jesus Christ our Lord and by the power of his Holy Spirit. So take heart and that's, that's it till tomorrow. Pastor Sean Linnell is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Pastor Linnell, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.